Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to season six of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Dana Denise Smith. Dana studied international history and political economy at the London School of Economics. She started her career as a journalist before training as a solicitor at Linklaters. Dana is the founder of First 100 Years Women in Law, a project celebrating the journey of women in the legal profession. In 2010, Dana started her own business, Obelisk Support, and since then has been awarded Women in Law Awards for Special Contribution Award in 2020, the Legal 500 Award for Outstanding Achievement in Legal Services in 2019, Lexus Legal Personality of the Year in 2018, and one of the Times Top 50 Employers for Women in 2015 and 2016. So wow, a very warm welcome, Dana. Thanks for having me, Rob. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects, experiences and achievements to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality if you've seen it? I will have to sit on the fence because I never saw it. So therefore, I'll be right in the middle on the one hand. On the other hand, let's say five. And I'm balancing my ignorance with my very, very basic knowledge around who the main character that became most famous was in the series. So I'm afraid I think it's a five through just trying to be fair to my knowledge. Well, five is good because I have also given the show five and I've seen it. So great minds clearly think alike. But but today is absolutely all about you, Dana. So would you mind by starting telling our listeners a bit about your background and career journey? So I guess my background started in Transylvania. I was born in uh, in Romania and I grew up under communism. So very, very different um, kind of life to what I um, I have at the moment. I'm based in London. So I grew up uh, in a country where, well, to be honest, I guess the future was very predictable, but unwanted, <laughs> it's fair to say. My first career, according to what the party wanted me to become, apart from being a you know communist worker, I was going to be an electrician. And luckily for me, I loved table tennis. So I was managing to do all the you know, practical electrician training by actually playing table tennis and winning some competitions to stay away from the kind of, um, you know, manual work that I didn't really want to do. And uh, communism collapsed and saved me. <laughs> so I, um, I, I then got out of my electrician path and embarked on just, you know, sciences and further maths and that kind of stuff. And um, everybody had me down as a future doctor. Although I was obviously becoming a future doctor, I don't know, doing some kind of electrical things in the operating theater. I'm not quite sure how that was going to work out. And I love the idea of being a doctor, but uh, I, I then encountered chemistry and that put me off a little bit. <laughs> and um, one day I decided I'll be a journalist. And uh, I guess because of the political changes in the country, journalism became a career that you could, you know, think about. And it felt to me like the career where you could hold people accountable. And I love writing, so I settled on a journalism path um, just before leaving high school. After which, I just went. Yeah, I just went straight into reporting out of high school. I didn't go to university. It was a huge disappointment for my dad. He was very firmly set on our, you know, all his three girls would go to university, and um, I just 
loved writing, I went straight into local journalism. And then I encountered international journalism through Reuters and realized that actually there's bigger journalism I could be doing and I love writing in English. So I ended up in London being a journalist and then went to university as a mature student a bit later than my peers and studied at the LSE, as you mentioned, history and political economy. Had a brief return to journalism after which I decided to go and become a lawyer. So that was, and there we have it, I embarked on my legal education on 9-11. <laughs> a very historic journalistic day when I was on my first day at uni thinking, why am I here rather than covering this world event as a journalist? So, you know, sometimes you pick your times, huh? You do pick your times and you'll never, ever forget that date, obviously, for, for very obvious reasons. I just want to go back to two things. One thing, I absolutely love table tennis, so we're going to have to play a game at some point or a match, I should say. Challenge accepted. <laughs> there we go. There you are, listeners. You can hear that. And then secondly, I, if I say I'll pronounce it incorrectly, so I do apologize for everyone who lives there, but I've been to Tugamuresh in Romania for my brother's Sagdu from many, many moons ago. Is that a place that you know well or would, would know of or would have visited? I have visited and I don't know it very well, but I know where it is. And uh, it is in Transylvania, so it's not too far away. Maybe... 60 kilometers something like that not too bad yeah because i remember we got a day trip to transylvania slightly bigger than when i grew up <laughs> oh really well what a yeah. small world well let's move on because you did go into dive into the legal world and you trained at a magic circle firm with link laters what areas of law did you experience and what skills did you learn from your time there so I was interested in Linklater simply because they have such a blue chip client base, really. So I was quite keen to kind of experience as much as possible. I spent half the time in finance. I tried to avoid the corporate seats. I heard that people never sleep. But then I went to the finance one, so I didn't sleep either. <laughs> so a lot of leverage finance and transaction, which is really, really interesting. A lot of yeah, really not very complicated documentation, but you had to be very well organized and really understand the kind of timetable. Always a bit daunting when the client called and asked for something, you weren't quite sure where they were. And then I, then the second part, I did litigation and employment. And employment really was the one that captured my imagination. I think it was because um, it's all about people. I enjoyed, you know, the kind of people problems. It had a litigation aspect. I liked the fact I ended up going to court quite a lot. I went, I spent the last three months as Linklater's on secondment to the free representation unit, where I did exactly the opposite of all the work I used to do at Linklater's, which was all big kind of corporate, you know, restructuring schemes and that kind of stuff. Whereas at through, it was all claimant work and, you know, people that, weren't represented, finally had somebody that could help them in court. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the advocacy aspect. I enjoyed helping people and getting, you know, getting good results for them. But yeah, employment was the area where my heart stayed. Well, it's important that you do. And there's a good message there that, you know, you do need to follow your passions and where you are most interested in because it's super important as a career can be a long time but let's fast forward then so from you know being highly successful at Linklaters in 2010 I believe you started Oblix Support after traveling to India to explore your next entrepreneurial idea so can you explain more about your business and what it does? 
Sure. So I actually left Linklater's and I decided to be an entrepreneur. But my first business is not this one. I actually explored entrepreneurship in a similar model with a network of consultants and experts. But in my previous line of business with, um, you know, political risk and writing, I realized, I think, having qualified and spent a bit of time in the legal profession, I was a bit older when I qualified, remember, because I came quite late to going and becoming a graduate and actually suddenly having this moment of deciding to be a lawyer. And so I kind of figured very quickly that I wanted to fast track my career in a different way and I wanted to have more control and more autonomy over where I was going to go. And I didn't feel, um, you know, a big law firm was the right environment to kind of allow my creativity to flourish, I guess. So by the time I went to India, I was already running my first business. And that's why I went to India. I went on a government trade mission to try to export my economic analysis into India. And then I had this light bulb moment of creating a very different organization built for the legal sector. I didn't think I would ever come back to the legal sector to become a provider into that ecosystem. But obviously, I'm glad I did. Yeah. And look, it's been a success and everything you seem to touch does fantastically well. And what I want to talk about is around values and principles, because your founding principle is to honour the principle of human first, which I absolutely love. But what's your meaning behind this? It's a very good question. So I think it's got, uh, you know, it's a, if you like a hashtag almost, you know, it's everything that we do, we do put this filter of human first, I guess, for me, you know, obviously with technology and everything that's happening and noise around, I think we always stop to ask ourselves, is this actually putting people at the heart of our work? And at the end of the day, law is everywhere. And um, we forget, I think, how many lives it touches and in so many different ways. And it was our way of articulating that people are central to the legal profession, to the concept of rule of law. Actually, What's the point of law itself? And I think by putting human first through that lens, through all our work, we remember that we are in the legal profession doing work that impacts a wider community than we think. And it's a kind of shorthand almost of saying everything we do, we need to remember people are the end kind of recipient of it. Yeah, I love that. And I always talk a lot about it's no longer B to B, B to C. It's H to H and it's human to human. And that's what we all need to remember. And I just absolutely love your founding principle. Um, I want to stick with um, public support because my understanding is it works in four stages. So the first being talk to us, second, build your service, third, get started and four, job done. So can you explain a little bit more about each of those stages to us, please? So basically the idea behind business was that a lot of businesses don't access legal support early enough because it's too expensive, because they make assumptions about, well, many lawyers not coming across as human first and putting people off trying to engage with lawyers. That's the, you know, there's so many kind of reasons why and assumptions that are negative around the legal profession. And so the concept behind the business was also to re-engage a lot of the professionals that need to work in a different way. I mean, remember that, you know, COVID has obviously opened the world's eyes to the idea of remote working and flexibility. But in 2010, when we started the business and surveyed FTSE 100 GCs and asked them whether they would outsource anybody at home, everybody said no. So the appetite for working differently 
for giving people more autonomy around how they work and yet still deliver the work to the end client has really come a long way. So really for us, it's about business because we only really work with businesses. They have a need, you know, maybe they have a, you know, commercial contracts they need to negotiate. They maybe have an employment problem. It's, you know, they want to protect their intellectual property. Whatever their business problem is, you know, they can literally say, I've got a job that needs doing, where do I go? So there are obviously different types of providers on the market. We're one of them. And my idea from the beginning was to provide affordable, flexible and quality legal support. And so being able to give them the solution just for that, in you know, initial need rather than requiring them to put us on a retainer or something, you know, what is the problem? We can narrow it down and then understand who's best suited to deliver the work and then, as you say, job done. So it really is about being as flexible as possible to enable as many businesses to access support rather than basically shun lawyers, which is kind of how most people think. No, and I love that. And I think it's so important. And again, it's just testament to your values and, and you as a human first, because, you know, affordability obviously will increase access and everything that you're doing is, is, is tremendous because, you know, everyone shouldn't be put off. And the fact that your organization does exist will hopefully give people that hope that, hey, I can actually get legal representation and the right things that I need. Because I say it time and time again, folks, it's one of the best places and most important places to invest if you can, having the right legal support and any sort of initiative you're trying to do. So it's wonderful that your organization exists. So let's move further away because you've done so many wider things. And I know you have lots of other passions and things that is true to you that you want to help push and change. Particularly, you are a women's advocate and witness skills women's lawyer in the stages of helping them from professional and personal lives because sometimes they're overlooked. So What can the legal profession do to further support women and their careers? Uh, Where do we start? I mean, how how long do you have? (laughs) Well, I think there's a lot of stuff that's remaining undone. Obviously, you know, in a way, we've been taken by surprise by the rise of women in in the legal profession and the profession structures weren't ready for it. So recognizing that the profession was structured for a very different demographic is the, you know, step number one. It is becoming majority female, but the decision makers are not female. So we're holding on to structures that are no longer fit for purpose for the future. We have to recognize women's priorities can be slightly different. We lose a lot of talent. We still lose a lot of talent because of inflexible flexibility now. <laughs> Before it was inflexible everything. Now we're creating, you know, workplaces that are strict around which days of the week you have to be in and how you have to turn up even when they are flexible, generally speaking. So I think we have made some progress, but it's still made not on really understanding women's challenges sufficiently. So they're very much, you know, echo chamber kind of solutions as opposed to from the ground up. We have a lack of women leaders. We have, you know, a lack of representation across all aspects of the legal profession. So maybe we're seeing some improvements in some areas, let's say the lower tier tribunals, you know, many more women are going in. Look at the Supreme Court, you know, one woman out of 12. So you have this kind of massive gap, which, you know, optically and from a symbolic point of view, doesn't give hope to women that the change is possible in their lifetime and that needs to be addressed but there's so many things around you know gender pay gap is an issue everything in a way to me that's why I focus so much on the history at the beginning because a lot of it is a historic lag we've inherited all these histories 
and we don't understand them and we never stop to say, well, what do they actually mean? The gender pay gap, for example, is a complete historic inherited factor from the First World War, where women stepped into the war effort, they were paid less, and they never escaped it. So we understand some of those historic aspects, we can tackle them. I think there's so many ways in which you can cut the problem. But as you know, I'm focused on trying to break through and find some solutions. So yeah, but there are lots and lots and lots of aspects where we can progress. But I think often the conversation is negative and I like to keep it positive. Yeah, and I'm, I'm all for change. I'm all for positivity and I'm all for, like you say, solution. Time for a short break from the show. Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor, Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all. Something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, it's their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat, and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters. G2 Crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website. You can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. That's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking. Now back to the show. You know, sticking with, you know, being proactive and, and doing things and doing good for the legal community, you're also the founder of the first 100 years, so the Women in Law Project. So what inspired you to launch this? A very simply, a photograph in my husband's alumni magazine. <laughs> my husband's a lawyer and uh, to be honest, he I always opens all the posts and all the magazines and everything. So this photograph was from Herbert Smith and it was about something completely different. In fact, it was about the man. <laughs> But uh, I spotted in the corner and I was just fascinated by the fact that they had only one woman partner in 1982 and I was already alive by this point and I therefore wondered whether there was more to this photograph and that he was telling actually something bigger about the journey of women in law Again, because a lot of the education we receive in law school wasn't focused on women. I mean, in 2013, it was when I saw this photograph. I, you know, the only names I knew in the legal profession were male names, all the lords and all the cases were about lords and all the kind of famous names were men. And um, I did wonder when I saw the photograph whether there was something in it and why did we only have one woman in 1982 and what was that telling us and that's when I started to research and I discovered that women were basically banned from joining the legal profession until 1919 
and they needed to change the law to enable them to be classified as persons. And I wanted to celebrate that because I thought it was such an important thing to focus on and educate and inform and also bring out from all that history the role models that we had no idea about. So that was kind of the first hundred years was creating a campaign to run up to the centenary of the Act of Parliament that allowed women to participate in the legal profession. And But it was also a kind of way of, it was an oral history project as well. We filmed a lot of the role models of today, a lot of the firsts of our generation, most of them are still alive. And we basically made this kind of promise to the legal profession that the next generation is more informed, has more material and doesn't have that kind of poverty of knowledge that we inherited. And also then it became something much bigger than I thought, to be honest, because I I thought we'll just produce all these films, we will create this library, we will do some research and the job will be done. But it became really evident that there was such a hunger for this information. Women needed role models in a way that I didn't anticipate before. For me, it was about telling stories, but I realized for them it was about making reality, you know and feeling that they, they had a place in the legal profession. And before I knew it, it became a kind of movement out of my control. But that was a good thing. Absolutely. And we're, we're all for good things. And you, you were touching on it there because the, you know, the aim of our understanding was with the First 100 Years Project to create this online library of 100 videos about women who have shaped the legal profession since, I believe, the Sex Disqualification Removal Act in 1919. So with that, who have you had the opportunity to collaborate with along that journey? A lot of people, to be honest, because one of the first early things that I learned that I didn't appreciate was how expensive it is to make good films. <laughs> so we needed a legal profession to support because initiatives to really power them, they need to be bigger than the individual that funds. The idea is not enough. And really, I mean, we collaborated with so many universities, so many organizations, and they still do. I mean, we still have an exhibition that we call Print and Display where people just take it off our resource page, basically, and they print it, print it in their own kind of studios. And they're still going around schools around the country because they won't use the materials for teaching. We had a lot of the law firms support um, individual films. We had, you know, I guess the biggest collaboration was, was with the Supreme Court, where we managed to commission and get this first artwork depicting women lawyers mounted in courtroom number two. It was quite a complex project. And I was very happy it worked out. And, you know, we managed to fundraise to make it a reality because I hadn't appreciated how visually women lawyers were not represented. So it was an incredible, it really was so embraced by the legal profession and by the, you know, across the board, not just solicitors, not just barristers, but actually the judiciary. They've been amazing. Universities, it really captured the imagination of the profession in a way that I probably secretly hoped, but I didn't really believe it was possible. So a huge range of people really made it possible. And a range of people and a range of hours from yourself, because I understand you've also dedicated over 10,000 hours of pro bono time on the project. I'm a big believer in the actions will outperform the words. But what did you enjoy most during that time? And what did you want your audience to really learn from the first 100 years in terms of key takeaways? 
I wanted them, I remember actually, because you know, you sometimes you forget that when you're a child, things happen to you, but you don't know how they really will impact you in the future. So I remember a conversation when I was about 15 in my high school with Holly, a boy, and he said to me, you know, name any famous woman that have never ever done anything. And I struggled. I think I said Marie Curie or something. And there was you know, because we weren't brought up to be able to roll off our tongue a bunch of women that are amazing. We just didn't have the practice. So the first thing I wanted is if a woman is asked to name me some women lawyers that ever did anything, they have no hesitation to basically have a bank of names. They can just push out on anybody that challenges women have achieved and contributed. So that was kind of, you know, the basic aim was please remember these people because they have made today possible for you but at the other end definitely working in the Supreme Court an arts project very complicated very different kind of brain required and different types of team to surround us so the range has been really incredible so I don't know I mean for me I think we've produced so many different types I mean we always had this idea of a multimedia project because everybody has a different kind of sensory way of learning so we said well you know we can produce visual video and maybe you know the exhibition and we have books and we have photography and we created artworks really something for everyone if they want to if they learn in a particular way they can still find a ways. Uh, and we had a podcast as well to educate decade by decade the history of women in law. So really it was about how people learn and thinking of all the senses and thinking how can we take that to them. And we even had a commission of a classical music piece, which I don't think has ever been done for, you know, rep, you know celebrating women lawyers. And because only 2% of all the music played in concert halls around the world is by women composers. So we commissioned a woman to produce a piece of music, which was amazing. And uh, she's one of the rising stars of the musical world at the moment. So I'm really proud that we also found a woman um, composer that is, you know, her kind of star is rising as well. So it's really great to see that we can lift each other across different types of um, work, not just law, but it impacted beyond the law. Yeah, and such a lovely story. And uh, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing that. And it's great that you talk about how different people consume content as well. Because I talk a lot about on the show about the WAV strategy, either written, audio and video, and being able to dissect, you know, which way you can distribute that to get more people educated on what you're trying to to sell, promote or try and inspire if it's for for a cause. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to stick because with this because the project is continuing i believe with the next 100 years chapter so what do you have planned for that i think the plan with that is to narrow in on the issues <laughs> so you know i think history taught us where the sticky points are and i think it's taken them a little bit like tennis one point at a time and really getting them removed <laughs> so um you know for example gender pay gap we did you know we partnered with an analytics company and we did a you know study on where we are then we created a report to think about new ways in which we can be addressed trying to partner with organizations to help them tackle it and recognize that it is a problem and it's okay but it needs to be addressed and redressed so really we are you know again women leaders you know new role models because very often from the past because we had so few there's so few names 
And so we need to create the kind of role models of this generation and also leave a legacy and ask them about, you know, how they succeeded, what's important to them. So we have a new film series called Next 100 Voices that focuses on leaders of today to ask them questions. We continue our annual awards. We've had them before. (laughs) It was fashionable. And I like them because we always have blind judging. So people that normally win might not always win with us because we strip back a lot of the identificating kind of aspects and they really are bringing to the kind of surface really new names and I really love discovering new people that are doing things and sometimes are unsung heroes and celebrating them so I think the kind of you know, the spirit of the first hundred years continues. We want to celebrate achievements. We want to empower women to stay in the field connected to the legal profession. But when it comes to the kind of bigger, stickier points, we want to go deeper and understand the problems and see what solutions we can come up with. So for example, right now we have a survey out on mothers in the legal profession, because Whenever we surveyed, and we've had a couple of, well, actually a few surveys at different points, including COVID, mothers ended up on a kind of side track of their own where they would just give us a lot of kind of, you know, you know, a lot of things in kind of free text around how much they were struggling. And we said, let's take that and actually do something to understand where they feel they are and what we can learn from that, including for, you know, fathers and other members of the profession, right? So we're focusing on issues to understand where, why are we so stuck with them and can we do something to unlock? Well, you're absolutely doing something to unlock and, and sticking with celebrating achievements, awards, role models and legacy, something that I truly support all of. Um, we have to talk about you because Dana, you have been awarded the Women in Law Award Special Contribution Award 2020, Legal 500 Award for Outstanding Achievement in Legal Services 2019. Lexus Legal Personality of the Year 2018, one of the Times Top 50 Employers for Women in 2015 and 2016, and received an honorary doctorate of laws and many, many other things. How do you feel about all these achievements today? What can I say? I have been overtaken by my child. She's won more piano competitions than awards I've had in, in shorter time. So I, no, seriously, I, I feel very humbled. I mean, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't even think I'd be a lawyer, right? So when I was growing up, I mean, obviously I had a sense, we all grow up and we get angry and, you know, we feel there's no justice in the world. Some of them, because we're teenagers, some of them, maybe they're more justified. But um, it's kind of almost puzzling as well to have had so much recognition, to have managed to kind of catalyze so much of the industry around some of the ideas I had. So it's kind of humbling, but also surprising. But I guess, you know, I have put the work in, as you said, it's thousands and thousands of hours and it continues to this day. I, I take great pleasure working on these projects and these ideas but I guess they're not magical results they're coming out of the fact that I've put all this effort in and I'm really grateful people are noticing the work well they well they absolutely are and all of us on the show here congratulate you on everything you've achieved but you make a great point because the the awards are really just the tip of the iceberg it's all the legwork that goes beneath the water you know all of that hard work dedication that finally does get recognized by you know seeing the the top of it so thank you for all that you have done and sticking with you know accolades and achievements and, and features you've recently featured in the sunday times uh, my mum's army is out to shake up the legal profession can you tell us more about this article 
Well, this was really about, I think the category of article is called How I Made It, but I don't feel like I've made it. I guess How I Made It to Still Survive in Business Today is really the kind of subtitles and the translation. So I think it's just something that focuses around how you build a business from nothing, which is what I did. I didn't take investment. I wasn't a senior partner moving into setting my own firm. The climate in 2010 was a very different one when it comes to recognizing the value of people that want to work in a different way. So my idea from the beginning was not to allow parents and people with caring responsibilities to leave the profession because we were not prepared to give them jobs that were flexible enough. I wanted to focus on their contribution, their technical skill, what they can bring, you know, young, old parents, people with older parents, whatever they may have going on at home. I didn't want them to feel it's all or nothing. So, you know, a win-win rather than zero-sum game. And so my idea from the beginning was very much around, um, can we create jobs? Can we bring work to people that need to work in a different way? And the market wasn't really open for it. So I guess it describes my journey trying to bring all these mums opportunities, but the market wasn't giving me any. (laughs) So, and at the same time, obviously I had my child. So I ended up, you know, building this business. I don't really know exactly how to be honest. I always call it, it was the dark ages of my life because it was constant you know, obviously we work, I mean, you know, you've had a young child, right? So you know how they don't sleep and you're trying to do everything around them and um, do your best and you're not sure if it will succeed. And I guess there was this question mark around how much more can I take? And still we've got to where we are, you know, with all these, you know, thousands of people that we work with and different consultants and a multi-million business so you know it's happy ending I guess in the story but the work is never done yeah the work is never done that's a great message but you know also you have to carry on you know like you mentioned there there were challenging points or things not being heard but that passion that persistence that sort of you know, real tenacity just shines through in everything that you've done and hence why you've achieved so much. And, you know, sticking with passion then, I know, and it's something I'm passionate about, we have a shared passion for this, but you're very passionate about disrupting the legal profession. So what changes have you seen, positive changes since joining the industry, but what changes would you like to see? And I know where do we start, how long we got, but be as concise as you would like to be. Well, definitely, I think from a massive point of view, demographically, the profession's completely transformed with the rise of women. And I think that will demand deeper changes because they will not stay. I think there's a massive challenge generally towards legal professionals, you know, our reputation in the world in terms of, you know, what obviously you hear from the kind of, you know, the human rights lawyers and the criminal barristers, you know, are on strike very often. There's that kind of narrative. But actually, we are basically under attack as a profession in terms of what do what do we exist for? Really being able to articulate to the wider society the need for lawyers. Why are we here for them? And I think we haven't really done a good job. So we've ended up with a lot of the narrative being a negative one around, you know, greedy people that charge by the hour. One of the major changes, I think it's a good one, is that we're talking about mental health and well-being and do we really need to work around the clock? And I think the younger generation are a little bit more vocal, which is a good thing, because when I was training, people weren't challenging the demands from the top down. They were not reasonable demands. I mean, that was one of the reasons I said in the article in the Times, you know, I, I wasn't prepared to stay in the night if they couldn't explain why And it was needed to be in the night in the office. But I was a bit older, so I could 
asked the question. I wasn't afraid that my future depended on that particular job. But if you are starting off and you've worked really hard and there's so few training contracts and you want to impress, you might not have my view of the world. You know, there is a world beyond this training contract. And that can be paralyzing and really damaging to people. And I think we should stop and not glamorize it anymore and say, well, what, you know, we need to learn to define work. We need to learn to work allocated in an effective way. So some people are not completely murdered by the volume and some people don't have enough to do. We need to level the playing field so people can succeed without having to die on the job. So I think the kind of conversations that are emerging are really good. They are striking to the very heart of many issues that we've known about, but maybe we skirted around. You know, the whole point about culture in the law firms, in the legal profession, what is our purpose as lawyers? Because if you are invested so many years and so much money to become a lawyer, I think you're worth, you know, asking those questions and also you should be asking for answers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I absolutely agree on the mental health point. It's something very personal to me and I'm a very big believer in sort of, you know, supporting whatever we can when it comes to promoting mental health. And I was recently at Stephanie Boyce's uh, charity gala dinner where we sat on Law Care's table and I think they're doing tremendous work. And previous guests we've had on the show, the likes of Jody Hill, who runs Thrive Law, who really puts mental health and diversity inclusion at the forefront of her firm. Caitlin McPhee, who's also a former Linklater, has set up her own coaching business about rebalance, trying to help people within the legal profession. So I think thank you so much for shining a light on that and all the work that you've been doing. And, you know, undoubtedly, you're inspiring the next generation of talent. You know, many students, the next generation of lawyers are looking up to you and will have followed your story. So what advice would you give to those looking to start out in the legal profession? I think... Well, it's it depends. So first of all, don't be discouraged because it is hard to get jobs in the legal profession. But luckily, there are different types of jobs and different routes in. Never stop being professional and having high standards because I think it matters how you come across, how you present. I think we underestimate that we do make an impression really fast. And equally, I think if you have passions that involve the legal profession or beyond, don't give them up. And never be afraid of having a future beyond law because it is possible to find, you know, that law is just the start of something more exciting. It doesn't need to be the end all of everything and put pressure unnecessarily over over their heads. I think it's difficult when you have too much choice to make choices, but I think they should enjoy the fact they've got so much more excitement kind of ahead of them than even when I started. You know, it was a two-track kind of way that you could go and work your way up. And then if you didn't work your way up, you were out. Whereas now you can stay in, you can enjoy yourself and actually have passions on the side. So I think it's much more balanced and a profession worth joining because of that. I I absolutely agree. And I've I've loved seeing the change. And I I love that you talked about the professionalism point there. And it it brings back to my grandfather, who was a lawyer and ran his own law firm, always used to say, act with integrity, not when people are watching, act with integrity always. And I think that mirrors what you're, you're saying there. And, you know, it's been fascinating listening to your journey, what you've achieved, but also what you're doing. You know, it's it's really great to see people that proactively go out of their way to make a change. So as we look to close, if our listeners, which I'm sure they will, would like to learn more about sort of obelisk support or the first 100 years project, where can they find out more? Well, each one of the organizations have websites. Definitely on the first 100 years side, we always welcome volunteers and people that are prepared to help to spread the word to get us more, you know, 
support from the ground up because movements never <laughs> exist without support. If people are qualified lawyers or they're paralegals, they can obviously join the community on the obelisk side and try to work with us. Equally, can, they can just reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, I'm happy to connect. And I don't know if I mentioned, but from, I don't know, I think it's next week, I'm also representing women on the Law Society Council. So I uh, hope to make a difference by putting the issue right on the table at the top table. Absolutely. And congratulations. And that doesn't surprise us um, one bit. Thank you so, so much, Dane. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. So from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, we'd like to wish you lots of continued success with your entrepreneurial journey, career and widest pursuits. But for now, over and out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading content and collaboration hub, the Legally Speaking Club, over on Discord. Go to our website, www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there. Over and out.